morning. It is so good to see you today. We're so glad you're here. Wherever you are in the country, wherever you are in the world, we are just thrilled that you're with us. Uh, today, we are wrapping up this iteration, this particular version of our series, Bible Stories for Grown Ups, where we've been going back to the Bible and looking at it through, uh, looking at some of these well-known stories through a grown-up lens. Um, and it, it, I've heard from so many people that you really like these kinds of series, and so don't worry, we're going to get back into this again at some point in the near future. Um, but uh, next Sunday, uh, we're going to be gathering virtually and for the first time in 14 months in person. We're actually coming to you today from our new home for Sunday gatherings, 3rd and Lindsley here in Nashville. And so we are so excited to see those of you who are in the Nashville-ish area next Sunday morning at 9 or 10.30. We cannot wait uh, to be with you. And so whether you are in person or whether you're going to be virtual, uh, just know that as we move forward, we're going to work really hard to make sure that your experience is really, really meaningful. Um, And today I want to close this series by looking at a really well-known story. It's a story that um, has really grounded so much of the work and mission of the Christian church for the past 2,000 years. It's a story that gets titled The Great Commission, uh, and it's really been the impetus for the expansion of what began as the Jesus movement into a, sort of its transformation into a two billion plus person uh, religion. And so I want to dig into that story. But before we hear the text, I want to just kind of set it within context. And the context for this particular, it's at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and it takes place just after the resurrection of Jesus. So the two Marys come to the tomb, and they find the stone rolled away, and the tomb is empty, and an angel tells them that Jesus has been raised up and sends them to tell the 11 disciples that Jesus is risen risen, and that he will meet them back in Galilee. And there's something about that for me, like this idea that the risen Christ comes to them, but he only does so in Matthew's gospel in Galilee. He takes them back to where it all began. He takes it back to the moment when he was walking down the beach and he said to some fishermen, drop your nets leave it all behind and follow me. So there's this sort of homecoming experience here. And then, as they're going to tell the 11 disciples, these two women, Mary and what the scripture, the text calls the other Mary, um, they run into, they bump into the risen Christ who once again calls them not to be afraid, but to go tell who he calls his brothers to meet him in Galilee. So before we dig into this story, let's hear it read and then we'll uh, talk about what it might mean. Matthew 28, 16-20 Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came near and spoke to them, I received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. So that's a pretty familiar story, right? Jesus meets them on a mountain. He tells them to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's, that, that is pretty central. It has been pretty central to the Christian tradition. But I, I want to come back to it and ask some questions because I think some of the ways this story has been interpreted has actually been the root cause of so much of the pain damage, wounding, and trauma that the Christian church has created throughout the last 2,000 years? Is there a way to come back to this story that doesn't make it seem like that this is just the Christian faith trying to come in like an invasive species 
and wiping out all other religions and forcing people to see everything through one particular Is that really what Jesus has in mind here? And let's, let's begin sort of deconstructing this passage a bit with the location. It happens on a mountain. Jesus tells them, go to the mountain uh, that I told you about. And this is not the first mention of a mountain in Matthew's gospel. If you go back to chapter 5 of Matthew, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes, he sees a crowd, he goes up on a mountain, and he begins to teach his disciples. Then later in Matthew 17, he takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, and there's this big moment, which we'll look at maybe in another version of this series, where Jesus is transfigured. He's like, his, his clothes are super Cloroxed and bright white and gleaming, and that's a whole other thing, but it happens on a mountain. And I think it's important to say, we don't, know, we don't know if we're intended to think this all happens on the same mountain, but I tend to believe that in the context of Matthew's gospel, mountain is much more theological than literal. If we're looking on a map trying to figure out where this happened, I think we've missed Matthew's point. Right, because mountain in the Jewish tradition has so many, like mountains are, are places where people have encounters with the divine. Mountains are places where things happen. Moses goes up the mountain and receives the Torah, right? And Matthew is trying to show Jesus again and again at every turn. He's trying to show Jesus as a new Moses, Moses 2.0, who's sitting on a mountain giving a new law or, or a new interpretation of the law. This is Jesus embodying sort of this mosaic leadership. Uh, prophets like Elijah have these big encounters with God on mountains. So I think we're, we're in terms of this, we're, we're seeing this mountain not so much as a place on a map, but, but sort of a theological mountain, a place where these first disciples go back to where it all began and they encounter the risen Christ. And when they do, when they get to the mountain, when this happens, the text says that they worshiped. And it says some doubted, but when you really dig into the original language of the text, the word some isn't really there. So it looks like it just means they worshiped and they doubted. And the word doubt here actually means, has this, this sort of overtone of hesitation. They, they meet the risen Christ, they, they, they worship and they doubt. At the resurrection appearance in Matthew, faith and doubt aren't opposites, they're part of the experience which also leads me to believe that whatever the nature of Jesus' resurrection was, it wasn't this sort of thing that happened that everybody goes, without a shadow of a doubt, we get it, right? Because here they are in the presence of the risen Christ, and they're still going, yeah, 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 but also what? Yeah, yeah, I believe that. I totally believe, but I'm not really sure I can fully believe. It takes me back to the story of the father in, in uh, the Gospels who has uh, a son who needs healing, and Jesus says, everything is possible for those who believe, and this father comes back with this powerful line, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think that's where we all, if we're really, really honest, that's where we live. We live in the midst, in the intersection of faith and doubt. And we have been taught for so long to feel guilt and shame about that doubt. That somehow doubt being present means that we're not, we don't believe enough, or we don't believe hard enough, or we don't believe deeply enough, or there's something wrong, or something in our faith has malfunctioned, or that there's just something wrong with us that we've malfunctioned, and the reality is that at the resurrection story in Matthew, faith and doubt hold hands, because that, I think, is the experience of what it means to be human. It is to be holding on to faith, but also acknowledging that from time to time, there's a hesitancy, that from time to time, it just doesn't make sense, that from time to time, we're, we're just really not sure, and that seems to be okay. Maybe that, that's a mantra for some of us, is I believe 
Also, I really don't sometimes, so help my unbelief. And then when Jesus meets them on this mountain, he, he talks about authority. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, to Jesus. Seems like a weird thing to bring up, right? Like, it's almost like Jesus calls the meeting to order and says, just so you know who's in charge here. But, but maybe that's actually, maybe the Jesus is not flexing on the disciples. Maybe something else is going on. Because this idea of authority has come up again and again throughout the Gospel of Matthew in a couple really interesting spots. So when Jesus finishes his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, there's this great line where we're told that when he finished teaching, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them like someone with authority, not like their legal experts. Like We hear these other people all the time, and they don't, they don't have the thing. right? They don't have the, the sense of like weight that what Jesus is saying has. Right? And then in Matthew 21, when he's... Uh, in the temple, the, the priests and the, el- the elders ask him, where did you get the authority to say and do these things? Who, essentially, who died and left you in charge to be able to make these claims, to, to speak these truths, and to perform these signs, wonders, actions that you're, you're doing? Right? Who put you in charge? And then Jesus shows up here, and he says to the, the disciples, the 11, all authority has been given to me. I wonder if it's because the work, what he's about to say to them is going to be controversial. Not only controversial to the outside world, right, to the world of first century Judaism, to the world of the Roman Empire. What if it's going to be controversial within their group? Because what Jesus says next, I think we've perhaps missed. He's actually pushing, he's going to push them on something. And I just want to push pause right there, and then we're going to come back to it, because I want to look at what he tells them to do. He tells them to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Now, this is a pivot for Jesus, because way back in Matthew 10, Jesus commissions the 12, and he sends them out to do the proclamation of the kingdom. And here's what he says in Matthew 10. Jesus sent the 12 out and commanded them, "'Don't go among the Gentiles or into a Samaritan city.'" Go instead to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. Here's what he says. Don't leave the boundary. This is, the ba- this is our geographic boundary. This is our religious boundary. This is our purity boundary. This is the boundary we have drawn that keeps the, uh, the, us, the, the clean, pure insiders safe, and it keeps us separated from the outsiders, the impure, and those who we don't want to be connected with. Jesus tells his disciples, go proclaim the kingdom of God, but don't tell it to Gentiles and don't tell it to Samaritans. because they're not included in this mission. And then what happened? How does Jesus go from Matthew 10, hey, it's only about our group, to Matthew 28, go tell the world? Jesus has experiences. We started this series by looking at a story where Jesus meets a woman, a Gentile woman, and he, he sort of says some pretty harsh things to her, and when she responds relentlessly, undeterred, in faith, Jesus changes his mind, and not only does he heal her, he heals a bunch of other Gentiles, and then he performs a mass feeding of of the same Gentiles. I mean, what is going on here? Jesus has an experience that changes his complete outlook, approach, and posture to other human beings. And so at the end of Matthew's gospel, we find this same Jesus who said, only stay with our people, saying to them, actually, those boundaries that you've been given, the the way you've been taught to carve up the world, the way I taught you at one point to carve up the world, go beyond it. Because the love of God is bigger than the boundary. 
The love of God is bigger than the category of insider, outsider, saved, unsaved. It goes beyond all the ways we've tried to make ourselves feel really good about us by pitting ourselves against everybody else. I mean, when you think about some of the ways the Great Commission has been used throughout Christian history, it just breaks your heart. Because lots of people have died in the name of spreading this good news. Lots of people have uh, been mistreated, excommunicated, and excluded because of this text, because they didn't believe the right thing, confess the right thing, pray the right thing, go through the right ritual. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is he saying, here's the litmus test. If people don't say this, pray this, believe this, do this, experience this, then they're not included. What if the Great Commission isn't about colonization? Because isn't that what the excuse has been used is, is throughout Christian history, specifically throughout Christian history um, with the colonization pro- project of, of white European nations, as we've gone into the world and essentially used the Gospels to cover up for stealing land and subjugating people? Isn't the Great Commission in part what excused and legitimized the Crusades, where you had Christians trying to convert other people, specifically Muslims and Jews, under the pain of death? Isn't the Great Commission in part what the Doctrine of Discovery was built on, which is church-sanctioned theft of land, slavery, and genocide. It's also been used by the U.S. Supreme Court to invalidate and ignore the property claims of indigenous peoples. What if the Great Commission isn't about converting people to a religious system? What if if the Great Commission isn't about building a religious-industrial complex that sort of operates in a feedback loop that only serves to build itself up at the expense of others? What if that's not what the Great Commission is about? After all, hold on to your hats here. Hold on to your seats. God isn't a Christian. God isn't a Christian. And for that matter, neither was Jesus, and neither were these 11 disciples that were meeting on top of a mountain. Christianity actually, as a separate religion from Judaism, didn't begin until probably the late 80s, right? 50 years or so after the life of Jesus and after the first disciples went out and started sharing his message. Jesus isn't commissioning his disciples to convert people to a new religion. He just isn't. He isn't telling them, go out into the world, convert everybody you meet. It doesn't matter who they are, where they live, what they believe. It doesn't matter how destructive this is to them. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. Just go. Be a bulldozer. That's not what Jesus is doing. What if the Great Commission is about this? Jesus is meeting with these 11 disciples who have been taught a very specific worldview. That worldview is that we are the chosen and they are not. And what if Jesus is saying, you're going to be tempted to hold on to this within the boundaries you've been given, but I want to to call you to transcend those boundaries. Go to the people and places. There will be people who long to be a part of this movement. There will be people who long to participate in bringing heaven to earth through this kingdom movement of radical generosity, radical, radical compassion, and radical hope. And what it will take to make that possible is radical inclusion. What if the Great Commission is saying to these 11 disciples, you have to, you need to, God's heart is calling you to include our Gentile siblings into this movement?
What if that's happening there? What if the Great Commission isn't about converting the whole world to a religious system? What if the Great Commission is a reminder to followers of Jesus that we are called to include those who have been excluded? Think about all the ways the Great Commission has been used to exclude people. Well, you didn't confess the right thing. You didn't believe the right thing. You didn't attend the right church. You didn't pray the right prayer. You didn't go through the right ritual. You didn't give the right amount of money. You didn't wear the right clothes. You didn't do the right thing. When in reality, the Great Commission perhaps is saying, all those people you think are on the outside, all those people you've been taught to avoid, all those people you've been taught to fear, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Because in the wide, massive, expansive embrace of God, they are embraced as well. What if the Great Commission isn't about creating a new boundary of who's in and who's out? What if the Great Commission is about tearing down the boundaries, tearing down the systems of exclusion, tearing down doctrines and dogmas and theologies of exclusion to create communities of radical embrace, radical belonging, and radical love? And my, one of my favorite parts of this is the gospel of Matthew ends with this promise, Jesus to his disciples and to us. I will always be with you. That none of the work we've been called to do, none of the work of justice, none of the work of inclusion, none of the work of compassion, none of the work of generosity, none of the work we've been empowered and called to do in the world will happen outside of the presence and empowerment of Christ. This Jesus who meets these disciples on this mountain meets us every single day, every single moment, with every single breath, inviting us to the work, empowering us for the work, and calling us to keep going. What if we de-weaponize the Great Commission and see it not as a tool of conversion and exclusion, but a reminder that the radical message of Jesus, that the real core of Jesus' message is this call to transcend the boundaries that divide and separate and, and uh, have messed up the world for at least, in a Christian context, at least a couple thousand years. And in the process of that work, Jesus will be with us always.